Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Christmas is a time of joy and happiness, or at least it's supposed to be. It's when we try to give to those we love. It's when we spare our time, breaking the work-sleep-work-sleep cycle we find ourselves slaves to the rest of the year. But for the Anderson family, Christmas 2007 would prove to be the exact opposite of that. For the Anderson family, that Christmas would be about revenge and retribution, about hate and malice. This tale is quick and dirty. It's fast and tragic. So I need you creeps to strap yourselves in for our Christmas special. Husband and wife, Wayne and Judy Anderson, were having their children over for Christmas Eve at their home in Carnation, Washington. They'd been busy cooking, opting for a roast over a turkey. A bold decision, but one I personally respect. All their preparations for the holiday had only built the anticipation for the festivities of Christmas Eve, something both Wayne and Judy Anderson reveled in once a year. The tree was lit, dinner was cooking, the stockings were hung by the chimney with care, and it was finally time for Christmas to begin. At roughly 4 p.m. on December 24, 2007, Wayne and Judy's daughter Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe, her boyfriend, arrived. Joseph and Michelle kicked off their shoes and greeted Michelle's parents before settling in for an evening with the family. Joseph kept Michelle's mother company while she wrapped gifts, and Michelle strolled about the home looking for her father, Wayne. And then the sound of a pistol shot rang through the home. Judy and Joseph heard the noise and ran to find the others, hoping that nothing bad had happened, that nothing insidious had caused the pistol-like noise. What they had heard was Michelle's gun jamming on the first shot. Seeing what had happened, Joseph jumped in to kill Wayne, shooting him with his own pistol. It appeared, though, that Joseph and Judy's short time wrapping presents together had bonded them, as Joseph, looking towards Michelle's mother, Judy, apologized before then shooting her in the face as well. Wayne and Judy Anderson, lifeless, lay dead on the floor. How could Michelle Anderson and her boyfriend, Joseph, have murdered her parents? And why? Why then, on Christmas Eve? Michelle quickly took to directing Joseph about, and the partners in crime dragged the bodies out of the home, outside to a shed in the backyard. And then there was the blood to deal with. There in the kitchen, blood splattered the walls and floors and the appliances. It was a macabre and twisted candy cane of sickening color. Michelle and Joseph grabbed any blanket or towel they could find as they frantically rubbed the blood from sight. The viscous pools of red pushed about, sending their sickening hues further across the kitchen linoleum floor before finally wiping up. The couple cleaned in a frenzy, sweating and huffing and puffing as they worked. They needed to prepare for what was to come next, because they weren't done. Not yet. Not yet. 
Scott Anderson, Michelle's brother, and Wayne and Judy's son, was also arriving for Christmas Eve dinner as well with his family. Scott, as well as his wife Erica and their two young children, three-year-old Nathan and five-year-old Olivia, arrived at the front door and knocked. When they entered, nothing seemed out of place. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary, despite the quiet nature of the home and the lack of Wayne and Judy fawning over their grandchildren as usual. The family of four made their way into the living room of the home before Michelle then shot her brother Scott. Erica panicked, shocked at what had happened, but managed to grab the telephone and dialed 911, but tragically was only able to get out the words, not the kids, no, before she too was shot with the pistol and the call was disconnected. Michelle and Joseph had joined one another, both shooting Erica, and that it was up to Joseph to take care of the children, which he did, murdering both of them. They would later state that they were doing the children a favor, showing mercy. They knew the children would be scarred for a lifetime from seeing their parents murdered. And in the sick, twisted logic of Michelle and Joseph, they were sparing them that pain. And I don't need to tell you creeps, but that was not an act born out of mercy, but of pure evil and malice. In total, 14 shots had been fired and six people were now dead. The entire Anderson family, minus Michelle, laid lifeless. An entire family who had looked forward to spending the holidays with one another. Annihilated in one evening. Years of raising and rearing. Years of hard work. Years of tears and laughter gone. In one evening and 14 shots of a pistol. Michelle's family was now dead. Her goals had been realized. But there had been a 911 call and she had to ensure that her work would not be unveiled so quickly. Michelle walked to the bottom of the driveway and closed the gate to her family home. And as one would assume, a patrolman did stop by that evening to check up on the home due to the disconnected 911 call. But found the gate locked and simply left. I'm not sure if he couldn't be bothered or if he assumed everything would be alright given a locked gate. And I can't be sure because I don't know what any of us would do in that situation, but I'd like to think that I'd be a little more intensive in my follow-up. Two days had passed. Christmas had come and gone, and Boxing Day arrived. On January 26th, Judy Anderson, who worked at the post office, was scheduled to work. But having been shot, neither showed nor called, which was unusual for Judy, especially given the nature of the Christmas holiday at the post office their busiest time of year. Linda Thiel, her co-worker as well as her friend, decided she'd stop by the Anderson home quickly just to check up on Judy, make sure all was well, and that it had merely been a mix-up. At roughly 8 a.m., Linda left work and drove to Judy's home. As she arrived at the Anderson house, she found the gate still locked, but unlike the patrolling police officer, she was not so easily dissuaded. Linda turned the ignition off and undid her seatbelt as she stepped out of the vehicle, walking around the gate and up to the front door. Then she knocked, but there was no answer. She knocked a second time, but still no answer. She then tried the handle, assuming like most that it would be locked, but reflexively trying all the same. But in fact, it was unlocked, and the door clicked open. As she swung the door wide and walked inside, she saw them. 
three dead bodies laying on the floor of the living room. Scott, Erica, and Nathan. Linda's jaw dropped at the sight as tears welled up, and she didn't even know the full aftermath of the tragedy she was observing, because shielded beneath Erica's body lay a fourth body, young little Olivia, cradled by her mother even in death. She also hadn't seen her friend Judy, who she'd worked with for so long, laying deceased in the backyard along with her husband. That's when Linda Thiel called 911. The gate is locked, which makes me wonder if her daughter did it because I might be up here with a murderer, said Linda to the 911 dispatcher. Police arrived quickly at the Anderson home to begin investigating what exactly had happened trying to unravel the terrible Christmas tragedy that was laid out on display before them. As police were on the scene, Michelle and Joseph arrived at the home. They quickly explained to police that they'd planned to drive to Las Vegas to get married, but had unfortunately gotten lost and decided to head back home. Not once did they ask why police were there. Not once did they ask if their family was all right. And thankfully, that fact wasn't missed by investigators who were more than unsettled by the lack of care or confusion shown by the couple. A detective, a little unnerved at this lack of interest or care in what was transpiring, walked up to Michelle and asked her why she thought police were at her parents' home. And that's when she broke down, unable to hold her composure. It's not Joe's fault, it's all my fault, she said through tears. Michelle and Joseph were handcuffed read their rights and thrown into the back of the police cruiser as they were transported to the police station for questioning. And once back at the police station, the story began to come to light. Why had Michelle murdered her family? Well, the reason she provided investigators was that she'd finally had enough. She was, and I quote, tired of everybody stepping on her. According to Michelle, she'd planned it for a couple weeks, pouring over the details of her plan. But why? Michelle told investigators her brother had borrowed $40,000 from her and was refusing to pay it back. And then to make matters worse, Michelle's parents had taken her brother's side in the dispute while also telling Michelle, who lived in their home, that she'd need to start paying rent. But if it was about $40,000, then why kill the children? There was one more Anderson sibling, the oldest Anderson sibling who was supposed to be at her parents' house for dinner that evening, Mary Victoria Anderson, who is perhaps only alive because she had an upset stomach that evening and had decided to skip Christmas Eve dinner altogether. What would Michelle have done if confronted by a sibling who seemingly had nothing to do with the money that Scott had borrowed from her? Would Michelle have killed Mary Victoria for seemingly no reason, the same way she'd ordered the murder of her niece and nephew? On December 19th, 2014, a 16-member jury was selected to hear the case against Joseph McEnroe, who had confessed to the murders in January 2014, earlier that year, in an effort to avoid the death penalty. As Joseph took the stand, he did his best to tell the jury what exactly had happened. Well, from his perspective, at least. Joseph, who suffered from a speech impediment, would only speak in whispers. Michelle started firing on Scott. Scott at the same time went and got up and started charging around the table to where she was at. It appeared Scott had died fighting for his life, as well as the life of his family, wrestling Michelle for the gun. 
Joseph didn't spare himself in the testimony either. As Joseph saw Erica grab the phone and dial 911, he ran over and grabbed the phone from her, pulling the batteries out and throwing them on the floor. Then Michelle shot and hit both Erica and Erica's daughter Olivia, who were both struck by the bullet but not dead. We love you. You don't have to do this, Erica pleaded and begged, hoping to save the lives of her children. Then Joseph told the court, I shot her so she didn't have to watch her children die. Erica and Scott's son Nathan, who stood closest to Joseph, was next. Joseph fired his gun, striking the young boy, before going back to Olivia to finish her off. Joseph, as many cowards do, tried to blame his actions on Michelle saying she had bullied and abused him and tricked him into murdering her family, saying, She treated me like an attack dog, a guard dog. He told the court Michelle wanted them dead because she was jealous and felt entitled. Coward though he may be, it appeared Joseph wasn't entirely lying about the verbal abuse at least, or the bullying he had suffered at the hand of Michelle, not that that excuses anything. A neighbor to the Anderson family testified in court, that they'd heard Michelle berate the man numerous times and then recounted one specific time that they had heard her screaming. You're a loser. You have no job, no money, no life. During the trial, Joseph was heavily medicated and prone to breakdowns. At times he'd laugh and other times he was barely able to piece together a sentence. When he described Judy's face as he shot her, he began to rock uncontrollably and inconsolably. I tell you this not to excuse Joseph's actions but to illustrate how not all killers are cold and calculated. Not all killers have some sick, twisted power fantasy to be sated. Many are weak-minded, weak-willed, easily swayed, morally confused. Some don't want to be murderers, but find themselves floating with the current and just don't have the will or the fight in them to push back. Some are just cowardly and weak. The trial of Michelle Anderson was a completely different story and can be summed up neatly in one little paragraph. All of Michelle's troubles in life were born out of her inability to accept ownership over her own life. She blamed her wasted 29 years on this earth solely on her family. She thought it was unfair how her life had turned out not the way she wanted it to, and she said it was because of her family. She yelled at the judge because her court attorneys were lying to her and that that wasn't fair either. And then when she asked the judge to leave jail to seek her own counsel, her request was denied, and then it was the judge's fault for not being fair and violating her rights. She wasn't entitled, because, as some of you are thinking, I'm sure, she was a millennial. No, I think the events of 2020 have taught us just how entitled a vocal minority of any age group can be. She was entitled and spoiled and rotten to the core because she was unwilling to accept responsibility. And that's just the fact of it. In her mind, nothing was her fault. It was always someone else's fault. Never her own. On March 25th, 2015, the jury found Joseph McEnroe guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. And he was sentenced to life imprisonment. On March 4th, 2016, Michelle Anderson was also found guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder and also sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, before you creeps go anywhere, I just want to take this last opportunity, this last time we'll be speaking before Christmas, to say one thing and one thing only. Happy Holidays.
so creeps. That brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>